And I like to say that I'm ambitious until three o'clock. And uh, I had a good run there and I got to build a world-class team. Uh, and then one day I came home to my husband and our twins who were uh, four, almost five or four and a half at the time. And, um, and they were sitting on the couch reading as they often were when I got home from work, uh, but they were reading to him. And I thought, when did you learn how to read? I am very happy to welcome my guests, Eva Denal and Kristen Bader to the show today. Eva is a freelance writer, editor, and communications consultant with 25 years of experience telling stories that matter. She's the founder of the Life I Want storytelling project, and Christine has been a contributor to it from 2019 to 2022. Christine is a TED and TEDx speaker, book author, was Amazon's former director of social responsibility and has been teaching students at multiple universities. Welcome to the show, Christine and Eva. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for having us. We're pleased to be here. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited to talk with you and have our listeners learn more about all your work and before we get started into the more details, um, could you share with our listeners, where are you calling in from? And is there a particular site or food in your area? Who would like to start? Um, Christine, <laughs> do you want to start? I'm happy to. I am uh, coming to you from McMinnville, Oregon. Uh, and so I will share that we are in the heart of Oregon wine country. Uh, and so um, I just have to put in a plug for some Willamette Valley uh, Pinot Noirs, um, which are really wonderful. We're at about the same latitude as Burgundy. So they're, they're pretty elegant um, old world style Pinots. So that is uh, the local delicacy that I will share. Thank you. And Eva, what about you? Well, coincidentally, I'm also in wine country, but on the other side of the world, even though Oregon is my home state, I'm in Australia from Great Western Victoria. So Western Victoria, about two and a half hours away from Melbourne. And um, my husband is a, a winemaker, an Australian winemaker, which is why we were here. We live on a vineyard that he planted in 2005. And so I'm also coming from wine country. <laughs> from a different hemisphere and from a different season. And I think what I love about your question, Karen, is that um, you're asking us about a local site and living overseas as, as an American in Australia, it's really given me an appreciation for how often I wear my American goggles and see the world through an American lens and living in a different country with a different culture and um, different policies and safety nets especially through the pandemic, has been very eye-opening for me as an American. So I will share that because the site, the site here is very much Australian, but I'm still looking at it through my American goggles. Thank you so much for sharing. I think, to be honest, this is the first time that I've had my guests coming in from two different sides of the world. So this is really, really <laughs> special. So thank you. And now, Eva, 
for 25 years, you've been telling stories that matter. And I'm quoting here stories with an environmental, social and human focus that engage people in making the world a better place. So could you share your professional background with our listeners? Sure, sure. So I started my career as a journalist. I've always been interested in storytelling and I've always been fascinated by people who can express their passion. And I feel like it's a great privilege to be able to capture that as a journalist to sort of engage with readers through somebody else's world. And um, I started my career at Mother Jones Magazine, which is an investigative social justice magazine in San Francisco. And then I, um, a lot of the magazines are on the West Coast in the U.S. or sorry, the East Coast of the U.S., but I'm a West Coast girl. So I wanted to stay on the West Coast. And after I sort of wanted to move forward in my career, I realized that I would have to leave journalism behind. So I transitioned into book editing and I worked for an outdoor book publisher that did guidebooks and sort of how to get out into the world and explore. And then... um, After that, I moved into a communications role for a nonprofit organization that helps businesses be more sustainable, environmental, and social sustainability is the focus of that organization. And that's actually where I met Christine. And then um, in 2015, uh, Adam and I, my husband, Adam, we are Adam and Eva, we had this long-term plan to move to Australia. He really wanted to... um, build his own vineyard. And he had, he'd been working in corporate winemaking jobs in the U S and he had this dream to come back to Australia and buy a paddock and develop his own land, which he did in 2005, shortly after we met. And I'd always had a dream of working for myself. You know, I always had this idea that there was more to my life than work. And I remember back when I was 25 years old, I just moved to San Francisco. This was during the sort of initial dot-com bubble. I'd gotten this job. I had been working in New York for a magazine and I'd gotten this job at this environmental news website called Verde. And four months after it paid my way to come to San Francisco, I, it, it, it folded and it was part of the bubble that burst in 2000. And, um, and I remember sitting on hate street with my friend Monica at this cafe at the people's cafe. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted in my life. And I kind of put together this pie chart that said, I I want three things. I want people. I want to be close to people I love and be able to spend time with them and invest in my community. I want to um, professionally, I want to feel professionally fulfilled. And and there's also this place element to it. I grew up spending a lot of time outdoors, skiing and backpacking and running and climbing. And I wanted to live in a place where I would have access to those activities. And so that those sort of three wedges of my pie chart became a North star for me professionally and personally. So now that I'm freelancing, I, um, I have twin, uh, Christine and I both have twins. So my twins are 11 now. And I like to say that I'm ambitious until three o'clock. I like to stop my, my work. I'm work as a freelance writer and editor, and I like to stop at three o'clock. So I'm there for my kids. And then we can go outside and have adventures. We have more time to spend in our community. I volunteer with a local swim club. I try to spend more time um, getting to know friends in the area because I'm a new person. We've been here for six years, but still getting to know people in my community as someone who works for myself with largely American clients. 
So that's sort of, um, that's a bit about my professional background and I guess kind of my ethos about work as well. I'm amazed, you know, when you're saying your pie chart and, you know, your North Star and your vision, it's just, uh, to be honest, I haven't met many people who early on in their life or career really had that focus and sort of knew where they wanted to go. So that's really amazing. It has, it has a little bit of a backstory. I, um, my mom, my parents got divorced when I was three and my mom, we, we lived in Southern Oregon and there wasn't a lot of professional opportunity for her there. My dad was already a doctor and my mom had been working toward her master's degree in chemistry. Uh, they were actually high school sweethearts. And then, so they got married shortly after college and she kind of put that ambition on hold while she had kids. But when they got divorced, there was nowhere for her to go in Southern Oregon to move her ambition forward. So she ended up moving up to Portland, which is five hours North and going to medical school. But, you know, in the 1980s, and I'm sure the same is true now, you can't go to medical school with two young kids in tow. So she, she was forced to sort of make this decision between raising her kids and pursuing her professional ambition. And I think for me as a, as a child, I was raised thinking this shouldn't have to be a choice for people. And, and again, using those American goggles, like, I think it's really easy to view the world as it's, everybody does it. Everybody can work a 40 to 50 hour week and have children. But really that model was based on this situation in the 1950s when more women were staying at home with their kids. And that's not the case anymore. So I think even in college, I I wrote a bit about, um, I I wanted to be a journalist and I, I ended up doing this oral history project with some of my female professors to find out how did they balance the idea of family and being professionally ambitious in this field that requires you to be on all the time? So this is something that that's definitely very personal to me. I don't want to live that life myself. I don't want to have to make the choices my mother had to make. And I really don't want my kids to have to make those choices, neither my, you know, my boy or my daughter. So thank you so much for sharing. And now, Christine, you have worked for a large corporate businesses like BP and Amazon and the UN, and you've written the book titled The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, Idealist, When a Girl Meets Oil. So can you share with our listeners more about your career background? Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I did not have the clarity, as you point out, that, that Eva had about what I wanted my life to look like. So I, I've been driven by a desire just to learn kind of how the world worked, but not really knowing, um, you know, what that would mean for me. And I, and I definitely had two uh, parents who subscribe to that model of like, we put work first and we work all the time. And my sister and I had dinner uh, in front of the TV and we were, you know, latchkey kids uh, and, uh, and work came first. Um, And so I've definitely followed work and put that first and let that determine where I lived and how I invested in my career and how I define my community. Uh, for a long time. So after school, after college, I did some nonprofit and government work. And 
uh, in doing that work, realized that the private sector, the companies seemed to be shaping a lot of the conditions that I was reacting to uh, in these other jobs. So I was an AmeriCorps member with City Year serving in communities that were poor because companies had left and taken all the jobs with them or had come in and failed to hire anybody um, from the communities they were moving into. I worked in government in New York City, which is where I which is where I'm from, and saw how companies were wooed for the jobs and the tax revenue, but they also needed to be regulated and had, you know, often outsized influence. So I started to get really curious about the role of business in society and who are these business people who seem to have so much power and influence. Um, so I decided to go to business school because that seemed like a good way uh, to learn about that. Uh, and out of business school, I joined BP, then British Petroleum, and joined as a commercial analyst because that's what you do with an MBA, uh, and went to Indonesia uh, with the company And I had because I had an interest in being in Asia. My mother's from the Philippines, and BP had just acquired Arco. Uh, and so there was a lot of work to do there to analyze all the assets. So I was using my new MBA skills uh, in Excel and crunching financial and production data to figure out how all these assets, new assets fit into the BP portfolio. Um, and then there was one uh, project that was proving particularly interesting. And uh, technically it was a straightforward project and economically it was very lucrative, uh, but it was a gas field in West Papua, which meant that the social and environmental impacts um, would be enormous. And this was the fall of 2000. Uh, corporate social responsibility was kind of a thing, but not really. And there wasn't an army of CSR people to deploy. So I put my hand up and said, you know, can I work on this stuff? Uh, we had to relocate a village. We had to figure out how to work with the Indonesian military, which is not known for their good community relations. Uh, so I said, can I, can I, can I work on this? This is much more interesting than the spreadsheets. And and they were like, yeah, please go figure it out. Um, so that's really how I got into this field. So I worked for a few years on that project, did similar work for BP then in China and in London, uh, and really had an amazing run there. The company really seemed to be interested in um, refuting the resource curse and trying to see could an extractive company actually be a force for good where it was operating. Uh, so I left in 2008 for the opportunity to work on a United Nations project uh, to develop what became the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Uh, and that was a great opportunity, but the United Nations is uh, slow and bureaucratic and semantic and political. And I really started to miss my time working for a big company because I felt like I was really having an impact on the ground. And I was working for this amazing, progressive, forward thinking company. Uh, and then the Deepwater Horizon disaster happened, uh, you know, killing 11 men and uh, wreaking environmental and economic havoc around the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. And it really made me question everything I thought I had learned about business. Uh, so just for myself to try to understand, well, what did I actually 
know and what did I believe in? I started talking to all these other people in similar roles at other companies, people who I'd seen at conferences and through organizations like the one where I met Eva and people who worked at The Gap and Coca-Cola and Yahoo and, um, and just asking these people, you know, what do you think we're really doing here? Right. And, and realizing that we all faced these common challenges uh, uh, and um, uh, mixed messages from our senior management and feeling like an outsider on the inside and an insider on the outside. So, so realizing that there was this community of people whose story needed to be told is what inspired me to write my book, which came out in 2014. And that was really good fun. And then when it was time to go back into a company uh, to walk the talk again, uh, I went to Amazon. Uh, and uh, it was kind of the ultimate challenge and opportunity in this field. And uh, I had a good run there and I got to build a world-class team. Uh, and then one day I came home to my husband and our twins who were uh, four, almost five or four and a half at the time. And, um, and they were sitting on the couch reading as they often were when I got home from work. Uh, but they were reading to him. And I thought, when did you learn how to read? Uh, and this was a great job, uh, but it wasn't worth missing that. Um, so I quit and uh, we embarked on some family adventures. And when we decided to go to Indonesia for a year to enroll our kids at the green school, I reached out to Eva because I knew that she was down there somewhere uh, and we reconnected and realized that we were holding uh, a lot of the same questions about the role of work uh, in our lives and societies. Um, so I'll pause there uh, and then we can get into that next chapter. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing, Christine. It's just so fascinating, you know, like you both backgrounds and how you then sort of like, you know, met and here we are today and you are both working on the life I want, a future of work that works for all. And it's just, you know, as I've lived or grew up in Germany and then I lived in the UK and now I'm in Canada, but in between I was in the US for 14 years. And so, you know, I experienced some of the things you were saying, having a young child and then the expectation of 40 hours is a minimum. As today I saw Elon Musk saying, <laughs> at least 40 hours in, in, in the office, but you know, but so, so I'd love to hear, you know, if you could then share, so you both um, met, realized you both have similar ideas. And so then how did you get started on your project or initiative? Yeah, yeah, I can take this. So Karen, when I started working for myself in 2015, like I said, with that sort of pie chart, I kind of created this other pie chart that was like, I think that I'm going to get, I always thought it would be hard to freelance. Like I thought it would be hard to generate an income. And it definitely is. I don't want to make it seem like it was a simple start, but I was thinking I need, you know, sort of 50, 30 to 50% of my time, I need to earn money because I need to contribute to our family's income. We're living in the Bay Area. 
we needed a dual income to do everything that we wanted to do. And then I thought maybe like 25 to 30% would be coming from projects that were doing the thing, the stories that matter projects, stories that were um, writing and editing on projects that were focused on social, environmental, and human progress. And then I thought I would have this little sliver of time left over in which I would sort of get back to my roots as a journalist. And I wanted to tell stories about the life I want. And I had this idea that the life I want would be going against the grain to create work that supported your life rather than having work dictate everything about your life. I mean, work, work tells us so much about who we are, who our friends are, where we live, where we go to school, how much we earn. I mean, there is so much about our lives that, that work has really like life is a journey, but work has really become a North star. And, and I didn't feel that was right, but I also felt like we lacked a playbook to live the life I want. And I wanted to, as a journalist, I wanted to learn from other people who were again, going against the grain to live the life they want creating a situation with work that supported that life. So I started to interview different people. And then two weeks into working for myself, my husband actually lost his job. He had told his employer he was, we were planning on staying in the Bay Area another year while our kids went to um, public school. So I had a, we didn't have to pay daycare or private um, preschool anymore. And he was going to work for another year and we were going to save money and then move to Australia. Well, he told his employer about his plans to work for another year. And unfortunately they decided to let him go. So all of a sudden my two week old baby little business was supporting our um, whole family of four. And when that happened, of course, that sliver that I had carved out to do my passion project just disappeared. I needed to earn money. And I thought of myself as this Olympic athlete and my one job and all of my training and all of my energy needed to go into work that earned money. So I kind of put that aside for a while, earned the money. We moved to Australia six months early. And then um, after a couple of years, Adam started to get up his business running. We needed, I didn't need to provide as much of income as I had in the past. I had good, solid um, clients. So I could kind of scale that back. And I decided to spend a little bit more time on that sliver, that life I want project. And that's when I heard from Christine. She said, Hey, we're heading down to, I think she said, we're heading down to your neck of the woods or something like that in this email. And I thought, mm, okay, well, we like, we need to talk. Like I've always felt a kind of kindred spirit with Christine. She looks, she and I both, I think, look at the world a little differently. And we're, we're also like very opinionated. So we're, we're happy to say, like, this is wrong. It really shouldn't be this way. Have you thought about this a little bit differently? So we started talking and I, and we sort of together thought, well, why don't we turn into turn this into a storytelling project? Because wouldn't that be the best kind of passion project hack for two people who really want to live their lives and spend more time with their family and go on these great adventures in the Southern hemisphere? How about if we share this project? How about if we share the work? And so we set up a blog, Christine and her um, husband, Adrian, and their kids, Alex and Claire, came um, down farther to Australia and stayed with us for about a week. And we set up the website and we started to publish our stories. And we've had a few um, calls with people from our community so that they can connect with each other because community is, is definitely an important element of living the life you want when you're going against the grain and doing things a different way. It's this, you know, the, the whole American cultural idea of 
rugged individualism is wrong. You need people to help you on that path. You need a support system. So that's also part of what we're trying to do is connect other people. We're trying to give people the the stories and examples. We're trying to give people the language that they can use to start talking about it. What is the life I want? What is my North star? Should my North star be work? No. I mean, this is a, this is our one precious life. And we're trying to give people that kind of sense of connection too. So they're not going it alone. You know, to me, it's just so fascinating how all these pieces of a puzzle fit together, how you, you know, at the time of your careers and everything, how you managed to meet and then start it all. And then, you know, Christine, so you did a TEDx talk about the life I want. And so maybe you could share a bit more about that. Yeah. So we launched, we launched the life I want co in May of 2019 uh, on that, that trip. And then um, my family came back to the U S we picked this town, uh, McMinnville, Oregon. And um, the first week that we were here exploring and trying to decide if it was a place we wanted to live, um, we went to the grocery store because that's an important place where we spent a lot of time. And there was a flyer up on the bulletin board. And I was intrigued because I thought, oh, this is a community where people actually use the bulletin board at the, <laughs> at the supermarket. Um, and there was a flyer for TEDx McMinnville. And the, uh, the speaker applications were due that night. So I scooted back to our Airbnb and, you know, tapped out this application about our project. Um, and so I had the opportunity to, to do that um, a couple months later. And so by then, uh, we had started to think about uh, a framework for our project and how we're thinking about, as Eva said, giving people the language and a framing to think about how to reinvent life uh, without work at the center. And we wanted to tell a different story to the narrative that's usually out there, which is usually one of privilege, that it's people who can afford to just quit their jobs and go sit on the beach. Um, and most people can't really do that. So we wanted to call out all of the pieces that we collectively need to pay attention to in order to create, create the lives we want, not just for ourselves individually, uh, but for our communities and for our society. So I was able to spell that out uh, in the talk. So we've got um, these four pieces. And so the first one is, yes, your individual relationship with work. Um, so examining what do you get out of work? Is it community? Is it purpose? Is it structure? Is it a way to develop and exercise your skills? So getting clear about that and then trying to examine, can you get those things from other places? So the first part is you do need to examine your personal relationship with work. And we've been able to tell some stories on the blog of people doing that. Uh, and then looking at employers, right? What are employers' responsibilities and who are some employers that are really trying to give their people power and agency? And uh, we're not talking about like the nice foosball table or free lunch and dry cleaning, right? Like who are employers that are really trying to empower people? Uh, and so, you know, we've talked about a few of those. 
Um, and then as Eva said, community, how do we better activate our community lives, whether that's to um, give people a counterbalance, right? So that they have a life outside of work or uh, a sense of community at work because people who feel that are happier and frankly more productive there, although we don't think that should really be the point, but community is really important. So how do you think about uh, the different communities that you have in your life and uh, whether that is physical place or a virtual set of people who, um, who you depend on and who depend on you. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, what are the societal frameworks that we need such as government policy uh, to enable us to live the lives we want. And so, um, uh, you know, Eva, maybe you want to riff a little bit on your American goggles <laughs> again, right? But obviously in the U.S., tying healthcare to our jobs uh, is a real obstacle. I think, I think that's a, a really key point and, and where privilege comes into play. I mean, Kristen, Christine and I both come from privileged backgrounds and we should note that up front. That said, as an American living in Australia, and, and you probably have this experience at living in Canada, you know, versus your 14 years of experience living in the United States, it's amazing to me how much easier it is to be entrepreneurial and innovative and to just sort of invest in some of your own ingenuity when you don't have to worry about the cost of healthcare, when you're not worried about how much it's going to cost to send twins to university and having to save that money at the same time. When you live in a country that during the pandemic maybe had some of the strictest lockdowns in the world, but also had safety nets to back that up. I mean, my, my husband's got a small business as um, he's obviously got his wine business, but he also has a tasting room and the tasting room opened around April of 2020 and promptly closed for about a year. And he pretty much automatically got payments from the government because of that. And, and I'm not saying that it's perfect. There's definitely legitimate, calls for more action by the government in Australia. And yet as an American, it, it, it blows me away how much more this country can take care of its citizens. It's funny when we were, when, the last time we were in the United States, it was actually sort of the winter of 2019 and moving into 2020. And our neighbors from Australia came to visit us for a little while. And they, um, this, is, this is pretty sad, especially in light of recent events, but they wanted to go to a Walmart because they wanted to see how American, America really did just sell guns at the shop. Like they couldn't believe it. And so they went to the Walmart to see their guns and then they came back and they were laughing. And I said, what's so funny? They said, they had these huge signs up that said, now paying $14 an hour. And my neighbors found that so unbelievably funny that that was a bragging point for America, that the minimum, that they were paying more than a minimum wage, which was so low. I mean, it's a, it's probably a fraction, a quarter of the, of the minimum wage in Australia. And I think that that's the thing right there that is going to shift this whole conversation or shift shift culture in the way that it needs to be shifted in America for people to live the lives that they want. If you cannot get a living wage, if you can't get 
healthcare, if you're relying on your employer and private business for all of these things to care for its citizens, you'll never unleash the creativity, the ingenuity, and frankly, like the time that people need to invest in their communities to solve some of the problems that we have in America from the gun crisis to climate change to, you know, inequality. Like there are so many things that could be helped by having people have more time and space to work on them within their individual communities. I, I, I so agree. I mean, the fact that like, you know, say somebody wants to work a part-time or a job sharing um, opportunity and often one of the hindering reasons why it isn't happening is healthcare. That most often, if it is less than a full-time job in the US, there is no healthcare attached to it or having people, senior people working, um, you know, a full-time job because they do not have healthcare otherwise, where in other countries, if you are, I don't know, say in your 80s or 70s, yeah, there is a national healthcare. I mean, I, I, comp yeah, I could go on and on, I mean, you know. I know this is an issue that you get. I'm so glad that you talk about this a lot on your podcast. Yeah, it's like, you know, like, you know, because I grew up in Germany, right? And I just remember literally going around and um, shopping for a pregnancy package at the different hospitals in the US because at the time my husband was a self-employed person and I was a stay-at-home mom. And it just was, you know, I just couldn't believe it to be very honest that, you know, and it kind of really opened my eyes and allowed me to look at how different countries deal with healthcare. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that, I mean, I think that issue of care is a really important one because we're now living in a society where we're creating a culture that does not care for people, does not care for people's lives, particularly for groups of people. I mean, there's a reason that that's, that statement is Black Lives Matter. I think when you, when you look at the data writ large and you know that one in five Americans are caregivers and you know that one in five people worldwide suffer from some sort of mental illness at some point in their lives. And you start to look at the economic impacts of that on a business. I mean, in the U.S. alone, just from sort of childcare falling through, it costs U.S. businesses $4.4 billion per year. And then it, not that it should be a problem of the private sector, but when you're looking at those costs, and, and Christina and I have kind of like done this work when it comes to kind of climate change and human rights. We've taken those, these are the kind of externalities that business doesn't necessarily account for when it's creating its products and services. There are those same externalities when it comes to your workforce that I think just now employers are starting to look at and say, okay, well, if it's costing employers $4.4 billion per year childcare, and yet only 48% of employers actually even know if their employees are caregivers, there's a disconnect there. They don't really know what their life experiences are. And as you've just shown from that story, there's a relationship between what happens in the demands of your home life and what happens in the demands of your work life. There, there's a reason that we say work-life balance, but it's time that we actually say, rather than pushing those <clears throat> challenges onto individuals, 
how about if we release some of that burden at the systemic level, if we finally make some of those changes? We know we can. I mean, the pandemic proved that things that seemed completely impossible are absolutely possible now. Yeah. And now um, you've written the um, amazing article, um, Care and the Great Work Rethink. And I just, if you could just talk a little bit about this, and I will make sure that all of, you know, the topics we talked about, like your TEDx talks, and I will make sure I put all the links in the show notes so people listening can then look up and, you know, further explore all the work you guys have done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think care care was a really interesting one because both Christine and I, again, we have twins. And during the pandemic, we were both as freelance writers and people who work as independent contractors, we were in the fortunate position to be able to kind of adapt our work around the demands of of homeschool, which not everybody had that opportunity to do. And I think you saw this phenomenon where people just got either forced out or fed up with the state of work in America in particular, but you've started to see that happen around the world where people are leaving their jobs as part of the great resignation. And I think it's, I think that if we start to like at the societal levels, look at work through a different lens, it's really interesting to put the lens of care in front and say, what can we solve for uh, one of the women I've interviewed, Leslie Ford, she's wonderful. She runs this company called Mom's Hierarchy of Needs, and she started a business that does consulting to companies called um, Allies at Work that says, and, and her belief is that if we solve work, if we fix the problems of work for the people who are most marginalized within the system of work, and those are typically working moms, if we solve for if we solve work for that category of people, we're going to make work better for so many other people. So she's got this mission with her own business because she actually lost her job shortly for, before the pandemic. She's the mom of two, and she started this business, Allies at Work, consulting to companies. And she's really talking about flexibility, what she calls flexibility with a capital F. It's not just about a shorter working week, or it's not just about um, choosing the hours that you work and still somehow trying to cram those hours into a 24 hour day. She said, listen, when I left on maternity leave, they didn't backfill my role. In fact, they cut some of the resources of the team. So not only did they have my work to replace, they had fewer resources and then the rest of the team had to absorb that work. If you have flexibility with a capital F, she's saying that you're starting to look at what are the resources the company has? What are the resources each individual has? What do we need to get done? And you're putting it together in a realistic fashion. It's sort of like if I were an individual saying, well, I have to spend all of this money, but I only earn this, this amount. You can't make that work and an individual budget. But that's what employers have been doing for years with their employees. So I think looking through that lens of care and saying, who are the most vulnerable people in my organization and how can I support them in a way that will help everybody else? But also there's another woman who runs, um, she's the founder of Tend Lab and her name's Amy Henderson. And she's done this research that's really fascinating that says, care actually changes your brain. Like as an adult, when you become a parent, 
during that first year, it changes the brain of not just the mother, but also the father, making you a better, kind of like actually making you a better person. You're better at care. As we know, as you know, as mothers, all of us are, you become very resourceful. You can get things done. You're efficient. I mean, I, I often thought as the mother of twins that being a twin was like the ultimate lesson in multitasking. If I was going to walk down the hall, man, I better have my arms either full of babies or bottles or dog food. Like I was not just going to take a trip down the hall to go to the toilet. I had other stuff to do along the way. Parents are very resourceful people. So if we start to solve and give caregivers the resources that they need to care well, and they can unleash these assets and they can bring those to their employers. They can bring those to the community. I was just reading this morning, Catherine Goldstein is the founder of the Double Shift podcast, which is about a new generation of caregivers. And she profiled this wonderful young woman who had twins at the age of 22. It was a very unexpected pregnancy for her because she had been told by doctors that she could never get pregnant. So all of a sudden she's having these twins and she started this organization. She started um, kind of a, a tech company called Otter to match up people. She started during the pandemic to match up people who needed, they were frontline workers and they did, needed somebody to care for their children with stay at home parents who might have needed some extra money. And since that time, and I, I hope I'm getting this right, they've done $22 million worth of transactions. That points to an enormous need in the market. And I think like that's the kind of ingenuity. She was a 22-year-old single mom of twins, and she came up with this idea. But because we live in a culture that does not care, that does not have the care infrastructure, we don't, we're not able to tap into that ingenuity. So I think the main thing that I learned through reporting that piece is that one, care is a public good. You, by exercising your ability to care to the best of your ability, you're unlocking so much opportunity. If we learn how to care and we actually cultivate that skill, we're going to be able to care for our communities. We're going to be able to care for the planet. And then Two, I think that the um, this is a real this is a real business opportunity. If we start taking care of the caregivers, we're going to unleash more ingenuity into the world. If twenty percent of the population is burdened by care, we're limiting that. You know, we're limiting that resource. Thank you so much for you know sharing. And as you know, I completely agree. And it's what I always find. You know, my latest thing is reading, you know, when it says we are an equal opportunity employer, and then it talks about we don't discriminate and it lists everything. But to be honest, I thought about it. The first thing that people, uh, employers discriminate is against somebody who cannot work full time. It, it, and it could be across all of, you know, the different areas, or, you know, because mm -hmm. like you just eliminate the possibility that somebody could work there and they could be perfectly equally qualified, but because they cannot work, it's not going to happen. I love that. I love that you had that realization. That's, that's an amazing point because we're so limited by seeing work just in this one cookie cutter way 
that we haven't expanded our minds to think, well, what would it look like to, to job share? Or what would it look like to have somebody come in for, to, to have, I mean, I, I think of my situation and the other freelance writers in my community, one of the things that they stress out the most about is healthcare. Yeah. What would it look like to provide healthcare to people who work for themselves? Yeah. Yeah, it, well, and just Eva's so right that the pandemic has made has forced us really quickly to do all these things that we hadn't imagined doing before, like remote work. Sure, some people were doing it, but that level of flexibility, which obviously has a dark side too, but also you know universal basic income. Like we learned in the U.S. that suddenly, yeah, we can actually just give people money. And it made a huge difference to so many people, right? And that was an idea that's been poo-pooed for a long time, but we actually showed that we can do it and it was really useful. And, and so, you know, so I'm so curious. So like we're talking about what the pandemic has done and like, where do you think will we, you know, what needs to happen, say the next five or 10 years to get more to like, you know, the living the life that we really want to live. And I mean, Christine, what do you think, you know, what can like people listening to us, HR leaders, business leaders, what kind of message do you have for them? What, you know, what could they do differently? It's a good question. I think we're in a moment now where new possibilities have opened up. And as Eva pointed out, we're in this thing called the great resignation. So there's no shortage of uh, resources and blogs and people and articles of people who are making that break and realizing that there are things in life that, there are, more, that are more important than work. Um, and so there are a lot of people thinking about making that leap and actually making it. And what Eva and I wanna do with the life I want is help people with that next step. Like she said, we don't really have a good playbook or guidebook uh, for people who you know, can't afford and actually don't really wanna just sit on the beach for the rest of their lives. You know, how do you restructure your life so that work plays whatever role you want it to play? Uh, and you've got time and energy to do all these other things too. So, you know, to get back to what would we tell people who are listening, first of all, we're in a moment. So if you've got that little voice in your head that says, something's not right. I'm missing something. There's something else. This can't be it. <laughs> like, listen to that little voice and look for your people because they are out there. They're in our readership. And that's why we've been convening these community calls too, so that people can realize they're not alone in thinking that. And then, yeah, for HR people, again, we've got this kind of second pillar that's about, all right, well, what should employers be doing? And so we have profiled people like Leslie Ford who are working with companies to try to figure that out. Uh, and so again, um, don't waste the moment because uh, as Eva said, you know, this is our one precious life. And um, 
you know, I, I, I'm obsessed with uh, Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Uh, and he uh, really emphasizes that, you know, you will never, quote unquote, clear the decks uh, and take care of all this stuff so that you can get to what really matters, right? We've only got so much time. Uh, for what really matters. So uh, seize it and, and figure out how to do that within whatever uh, constraints and situation you find yourself because um, there is a better way. I could listen to both of you forever. It's so fascinating. And um, as we are coming towards the end of our conversation, I wanna make sure that we have captured and talked about everything that you would like to share with our listeners. Is there anything else we might not have addressed yet? Karen, I think the key point is that we really have in this life, in American culture and beyond, we really have made work our North Star. And I think that we've stopped seeing the possibility of another way of being in this world. And so what Christine and I are trying to do, we're actually starting to put together a book now that's a guidebook to help people tap into another part of themselves, maybe the part that they've let languish for a while, but that has been awakened by this, the great resignation, the, you know, the great mom walkout, the, this, this sort of reckoning that we're having with work at this moment. What are some of the other things, what are the values that we can replace as a culture so that we're not oriented around these ideals of America that are about sacrifice, self-gain and productivity that are maybe more about care and community and justice and adventure. Like maybe there are these other paths that we can go if we just change our North Star from work to something else. And obviously employers have a role in that as well, they they now see their the economists out of the University of Michigan, Betsy Stevenson, has talked about parents really leading this renegotiation with the terms of work, and that frankly is very exciting to me because it's a huge number of people, and I think employers really need to start listening to the more vulnerable people within their workforce because it's a big group of people. And they're starting to exercise their voice. And, and there are other ways to structure employment. And I think as individuals, we need to start using our voices, especially those of us who have privilege and saying, I'm not going to stand for this any longer. It's not normal to go back to work as if nothing happened yesterday when 21 kids were gunned down in a school or 10 of our elders were gunned down in a grocery store. That's not normal. Something needs to change. And we're going to stop and understand this moment and understand what role I want to have in change. And as an individual, you can do that if you've got privilege. As an employer, you can support your employees. And obviously, policy policymakers right now have a huge responsibility to make those changes. Even though I'm not in the US, just seeing everything has been horrible. And it, I... I truly hope that it spurs change and that there will be a difference coming out of all of these horrible events. I, I truly hope. Yeah, and I, I will add to that that part of why what Eva and I are talking about is so urgent that, that this need to 
let people live a different way and not be beholden to somebody else's notion of productivity and profit uh, is that there are some pretty urgent needs uh, in our world right now. And, uh, you know, if I were still working a full-time corporate job, um, uh, when last week's, you know, the latest school massacre happened, I would have allowed myself a little bit to cry and then I would have had to suck it up and walk right back into the office and just get back to it. And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that this time. Uh, I'm allocating a significant amount of my time and energy uh, to fighting this gun violence epidemic. Um, but you know, a lot of people don't have the luxury to do anything but work. Um, and, and that is not sustainable for us in, in so many ways. Um, so the only other thing that I wanna leave with your community, Karen, is that Eva and I are really um, eager to share stories, to hear other people's stories. Uh, as she said, we want to write uh, a kind of guidebook, but it's not meant to be a prescriptive, oh, well, here's how you do it guidebook, because those are annoying and they're generally not helpful. Um, but it, it will be through storytelling. And so if there are members of your community who um, have stories about how they've just made even the smallest change to give themselves a little bit more autonomy and freedom, uh, or they've made a big change, or um, they have questions uh, to please reach out to us uh, at thelifeiwant.co and there's a contact page there. We love hearing from people uh, and we do have these community calls so we can all connect and support each other. Thank you so much. That sounds wonderful. And um, are there any other social media ways that people um, could get hold of you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're both on um, Twitter and uh, Twitter is probably the best way. Uh, I'm at Eva Dienel, E-V-A-D-I-E-N-E-L. And Christine, you're? Uh, Christine Bader, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, B-A-D-E-R. Um, and again, all of our stories are at thelifeiwant.co. People can sign up to our uh, irregular newsletter there. <laughs> <laughs> And, we and won't scam the, you. It's very infrequent. Definitely won't spam you. <laughs> uh, but that's where you can find all the stories and, and essays that we've written today. Well, thank you so much, Eva and Christine, for being my guests today. It has been so wonderful to hear all your insights and your stories. And, you know, I hope maybe in five years or so you come back or earlier and there are you know news and exciting changes that will happen and yes so thank you very very much thank you Karen. so much for having us karen we really appreciate it it was a good conversation thank you so much for listening to the show we hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas to keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.